really got really rough. We got to a stage when you lost all visible contact between sea and air. There was nothing except moving water. And then we uh, took a big one green, which uh, smashed the window in the wheelhouse. My first one, I haven't written a will. Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Hollis. In this episode, we hear more from Brian Upton, Emeritus Professor at the University of Edinburgh, about working on the unusual alkaline igneous rocks of the Garda province in South Greenland in the 1950s and later. In 1955, one was doing geological exploration, but it was also because it really was very, very small scale. One was simply doing exploration because one was going to places where no Inuit with any sense of it would ever want to go, and um, even the geodetic survey hadn't really bothered about an awful lot of it. The geodetic survey was the Danish authority responsible for making topographic maps. I went out on a engines aft general coaster across the Atlantic. It was a real pilot ship. Very happy when you got sunk in the Suez Canal a few years later. I transferred to a smaller boat where I met a Dutchman, Jan Bondam, who was a very important figure in my life. And we got to Iviktut, which was the main base for the survey at that time. Cryolite deposit was beginning to run thin. Cryolite, a rare sodium-aluminium fluoride mineral, was mined in South Greenland from the 1840s to the 1990s. Particularly during the Second World War, the cryolite mine was strategically important, as cryolite was used as a reagent for processing aluminium ore, which was used in manufacturing Allied fighter planes. They were looking for more cryolite, and they hoped that my mountain might be one of the places that uh, yielded the stuff. They had several other boats there, including the survey's flagship, the Steenstrup, and they had engaged a 19-year-old student, just finished school as their cook, Bodil Orbeck-Masson, who I met, and uh, subsequently married. They took Henry and me out to the field, a load of boxes and tents, and put us above high water mark, with the uh, essentially um, instructions, don't fall off and don't fall in. And if you have any problems, there's an Inuit community about four miles along the coast. You can go and have a chat with them. Big box of medical kit. Bodil was required as my interpreter. Went through all these bits and pieces. Ah, the morphine, yes. If one of you falls and breaks his back and there's an intense pain, you inject him here and so on with this. Oh, what's this? Oh, that's the amputation saw in case it gets really tricky. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I first saw Kumnat in bad weather. Brian looks shocked. Mummy, <laughs> I made a bad shot. It was nothing but um, blue-black rock disappearing into the clouds with a thousand waterfalls coming out of it. <laughs> I think this is a bit more rock than I can chew. Kumnat absolutely astounded me because I'd been brought up on scare God, and the first thing that we realised after a few days or so of working was that uh, it was a layered cyanide complex. 
The cyanite is like a granite, but with little or no quartz. Many of the features that I've been brought up on in Skiagor, I found absolutely reproduced in these silly rocks, much more silicious. After two or three years, it turned out that Kumiak uh, had essentially three components, cyanide pluton A, cyanide pluton B, and then a ring dike that was almost 360 degrees around the whole lot. And these went from the most highly evolved, most highly evolved checkouts. It just got more basic, which was, in those far-off days, this was all great fun. Henry Amaleus was our master in the field, an absolutely superb mapper. Henry was a student from Queen's University, Belfast, nearly four years older than me, so much more mature and also knew a hell of a lot about rocks and I think I learned more about igneous rocks from him than I had done as four years as an undergraduate student or anywhere else. And he became my big brother for 60 years. He learned his trade from J.E. Ritchie with a survey on the famous British Geological Survey people, so I could not have had a better teacher. I have absolutely no hesitation in saying that anything that Henry could See, I could see if I really tried hard ten minutes or so later. We thought, well, let's go and have a look at Gronadal Eco. The Gronadal Eco complex is a suite of rocks mainly comprised of cyanite and carbonatite. Carbonatite is an extremely unusual alkali-rich volcanic rock. Only one active carbonatite volcano exists in the world today, Aldoño Lengai in Tanzania. So we spent some time on that. This is getting on to 1957. And the survey recognised that Henry had outstanding talents as a field worker and gave him a contract, Matt Gronadal Ecan. Probably the most complicated bit of ground in the whole of the Garda province because it turns out to be the oldest, almost certainly over 1.3 giga years. That's 1,300,000,000 years old. Gronadal looks like a complete contrast to Kung Natfil. Absolutely fascinating and... Uh, I was also absolutely uh, consumed by the aesthetic beauty of these rocks. I've never come across rocks which were quite so fresh as those that we were dealing with in the, in the Gardar. And it was only later that I started to realise that these rocks were extraordinary because they'd been crystallised, getting on for a quarter of the age of the planet, and absolutely nothing had happened to these except they had been elevated and they had been wiped clean by the Pleistocene ice sheets, which had had the decency already a few thousand years ago to start retreating and leave these absolutely clean as uh, geofossils. Then the survey moved its base from Ivigtut, moved south, mostly east, to um, Narsak, to um, Delta area there, Duanes. And what was it like to do fieldwork in South Greenland in those days? 55, 56 and so on. We'd have a couple of tents. We'd have a, a big ridge tent, which would be the main living quarters, living, eating, drinking, sleeping. And we would have a spare tent as a, a store tent and as an emergency tent. There was no radio. We'd be given little mirrors to try to signal. But otherwise, they say, we were really just told to look after each other and to not fall in or fall off. Later on, with the helicopters, we then had a, a twice-daily radio call-up. I think it would be 8 o'clock in the morning and by 6 o'clock in the evening, something of that sort. 
and they would take no notice if you didn't if you missed one of them, but if you missed a couple of them, they'd probably say cuss and bother would have to send somebody out to have a look. In early days, extremely adequately fed loads and loads of tin stuff, we'd be given white bread, we'd be given uh, rye bread, when all the white bread had turned black or green, you switched to the rye bread. Uh, when the rye bread started turning green, you just cut that down until you had nothing left which wasn't mouldy, and uh, you reckon that was probably about the end of the season. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing was they would give us, in the early days, they'd give us a side of bacon, which you hung up on a tent post and took a strip of that, and that was great. I never, ever had any complaint. Oh, the other thing, we had a, a line with a hook on the end of it. And I don't think you would have seen this ever in Greenland, but codfish swam past any point in tons. You could stand and watch codfish passing by as long as you were prepared to stand and watch. There was any amount of fish, but that was in 55 by... Mid-1960s, you'd have to stick around waiting for a codfish. Toward the late 1960s, the cod fishery in Greenland saw a dramatic decline because of a combination of overfishing and environmental changes. But they always reckon, oh, we'll never go short of hungry as long as you've got a, a hook on the, on the line. Well, my dear friend Henry and his mate, Harry, they were up in the Eagle Eco Mountains, up at about... 1,200 metres or so when they got stuck one night and uh, they went to get their emergency back out and they found they just had a line on a hook and uh, wasn't a great deal of use at that height. So. <laughs> During the radio call-ups at uh, 6 o'clock every evening there'd be a round-up to see if anybody had any needs, any problems. And uh, Joan Watterson said, do you need any more provian? He said, uh, yes. He said, uh, we're down to... Um, Six bottles of tomato ketchup and one field assistant. Please send more assistants. <laughs> <laughs> and he got an official, um, not a call marshalling, but Ellis Rasmus and the, the head of the Geological Survey of Greenland at that time. Very cross about that. Of course, these came out public there <laughs> by all the fishing boats and villages of miles around who didn't wish GTU to be regarded as laughing stock. <laughs> Every now and again you would have a storm. Adrian Finch invited me to join him on Motsfeld, which is a 4,000-foot plateau, very, very stony. And I said, no, Adrian, I think I'd rather work on Dupigot. I gave him a phone at the end of the season. I said, how did it go, Adrian? He said, oh, not good, Brian, not good. I said, what happened? He said, we had a storm, blew the sense away, and uh, there's a small lake up there. It normally just blows the lake over us. But this time it windows from the other side and blew everything into the lake. My nearest call was 1970. I was with my brother-in-law in Tudadoc, and we had a rendezvous with one of the ships grow off the north coast in Bredefjord. And we could see over inland ice that was turning colours, so the skipper was in a hurry to get us on board and get us back, I don't know, four hours or so back to Narsak. And it got really rough, and we had the one dinghy on the side of, on the davits on the side, but uh, if that had filled with water, it would have capsized the ship, so we had the plugs out of that. After a time, it got so rough down below in the hole that everybody decided to it be up in the wheelhouse, and it was getting really rough. We got to a stage when you lost all 
visible contact between sea and air. There is nothing except moving water. You couldn't see the top of the mast. And then we uh, took a big one green, which uh, smashed the window in the wheelhouse. We were then up to our ankles, at least, in seawater. And at that stage, we lost way. We couldn't go into the waves anymore. We were swung around in the troughs. And I thought, oh, bother. My first thought was, I haven't written a will. I'm not going to get out of this. I'm going to die in a minute. <laughs> but um, I wouldn't be here telling you this story if we hadn't. We got back to Narsac, but I think we were on board in the harbour three days before the wind and the waves slackened enough to get onto shore. So there are storms now and again. In the late 1950s, Brian moved on to one of his great loves of the Garda province, the Garda Dykes, which he continues to work on today. Helicopters were first introduced in 1958 with Danish pilots. And two of the senior members, senior men, Jan Blondam and Asker Bertelsen, took a reconnaissance flight one day. They flew westwards, this big island out to the west, archipelago, and uh, came back and Jan Blondam was seething with excitement. Brian, see the most wonderful things there. Dykes, you've never seen anything like it. They're giant dykes. Things half a kilometre, and they've got um, nearly up to a kilometre wide across that place. And we flew over somewhere which we, it was, looks uh, a crescent, a blue crescent. We called it the Blue Moon Lake, the Blue Moon Sir. He said, it's, uh, you've got another Gala complex out there, you know. And I had been working on Illa Malsac, but I said, Ellis Rasmussen, who was the director of the survey and was out there at the time, I said, could I go out and have a look at these things? And um, he sent me out with Stephen Moorbath. Stephen came out with me and, uh, yes, a wonderful, wonderful playground. And the world has got many, two dozen, if we really stretched it, big, big dikes around the world. The granddaddy of them all is the Zimbabwean great dike at 30 kilometres across. There are big ones around the place, but they're all tholeites. Tholeites are the most common chemical type of basaltic rocks. And very largely, you've seen one, you've seen a lot. All very, very, very similar. The two giant dike events in the Narsac region are different. They are very much more enriched. What this means is that the rocks are enriched in elements that don't easily fit into the crystal structure of most minerals. Elements like the rare earth elements, zirconium and uranium. The giant dikes of the, what I call the southern rift of the younger Garda, are geochemically unique. And I think they are an absolutely fundamental, critical part of the story. I've asked people around the world, they say, Brian, that's doesn't come out of any normal mantle. Normally, layered magmatic rocks are formed by melting of the Earth's mantle, which is the largest part of the layered interior of the Earth beneath the Earth's crust. But modelling of the chemical composition of the rocks in the Garda province in South Greenland shows that it wasn't normal mantle that melted to form these rocks. Whatever was the source that melted to form these rocks was something extremely unusual. I was thinking this morning, talking, listening to a talk on the radio about a woman talking about dinosaurs, and she, we can only know a terribly little teeny weeny weeny bit. We have to try to extrapolate in our imagination what it must have been like. And this is what one does really in any branch of science. One can only nibble on the fringes. Everything we do on Illamauzak, for example, just opens up more problems. The Garda province, Sensulatu, the whole damned lot of it, will keep people busy if they're interested in doing these things into the far future. You can never stop. There's always more to be known. 
I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear from Emeritus Professor Kent Brooks about the discovery of a crashed American naval aircraft in East Greenland in 1966.